How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Genius Foods. In this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to Dr. Marion Nessel. Marion Nessel is a professor of nutrition, food studies, and public health at New York University, and she's also the author of the new book, Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat. Dr. Nessel is a career critic of the food system, and over the course of the next hour, you're going to discover the key nutrition-related problems burdened society, as well as what Dr. Nessel sees as being the chief causes of them, where food marketers mislead consumers and how to protect yourself and your family, the food that I think is a health food that Dr. Nessel disagrees with me on, the dangers of industry-funded research, why nutritionists don't like to use the phrase junk food, Dr. Nessel's take on the eternal low-carb, low-fat battle, meat, and whether or not organic food is really that much better for us. It is so critically important, you guys, to be willing and able to challenge your own beliefs, and Dr. Nessel provides so much food for thought over the course of the next hour that you're likely going to want to listen to this episode twice. Now, before we really get into it, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the virtues of coffee. I'm a big fan of coffee, and I just had a cup before recording the intro to this podcast. It makes me feel great, and it is full of dietary polyphenols. Now, Dr. Nessel would argue that it's really about the dietary pattern as a whole, and that individual foods aren't able to sway your health in one direction or another. But observational evidence suggests that people who drink coffee tend to have reduced risk for neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and tend to live longer too. The coffee that has become my go-to lately comes from a company called Four Sigmatic that infuses their coffees, which are all organic, with quote-unquote medicinal mushrooms. These include chaga and lion's mane. Lion's mane has been studied for its ability to potentially improve cognition in patients with mild cognitive impairment. Their coffees come in super easy-to-use packets, and I tend to go through two or three a day. And while it could be a placebo, I definitely feel like they increase my productivity and do not give me the jitters that, um, you know, you can sometimes expect when you consume lots of coffee. So if you'd like to give Four Sigmatic a try, head over to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and you'll get to save 15% off of everything um, on their website, which is the highest discount that you will find anywhere on the web. So again, you can go to foursigmatic.com slash max and try their entire range of coffees and medicinal mushroom products. And I look forward to hearing what you think. All right, guys. Well, we're just seconds away from my chat with the brilliant Marion Nessel. If you enjoy it, please take a moment to leave a rating and a review for this podcast on iTunes or take a screen grab and share this episode on social media. You can post a screen grab up to your Instagram stories or tweet a link to um, this particular episode. Either way, that would um, mean the world to me and help spread the word about what we're doing here over at The Genius Life. All right, guys. Without further ado, here is Dr. Nessel. So thank you for having me in your office. This it's is a pleasure. Yeah, it's very nice to meet you. I've read a lot about you, and um, I'm excited for this conversation, so thank you. Great. Let's do it. Yeah. So why don't we start, for people that maybe are not as familiar with your work, what are the kinds of things that you study and write about? Well, I write about food politics. I've been doing that now for a number of years. I've been writing, teaching, and lecturing about food politics um, for a long time now. And for me, it's... Uh, you know, one of these things where it keeps you going and it's interesting and there's something new every day. It's a full employment act. I love that. And your latest book is called Unsavory Truth. It's about how the food industry has the tendency to meddle in science. Is that an accurate portrayal? Well, I think tendency <laughs> is an understatement. Uh, the food industry has figured out that it can get scientists to do studies that will demonstrate benefits of particular products, that will demonstrate that anybody who says anything that's wrong with the products is using methods that are so poor they can be ignored. Um, and is interested in finding personal solutions to nutritional problems rather than uh, taking any responsibility for those problems. What kinds of problems are we talking about when we refer to nutritional problems? Well, there are three enormous public health nutrition problems in the world today. One is not having enough food. One is having too much food and becoming obese and developing type 2 diabetes and so forth. And the third is the effects of our food production and consumption system on the environment. Um, and there's an enormous amount of research that goes into protecting the food industry against any responsibility for any of those. And you know, in a way, I can understand the food industry's position on this. 
they're businesses with stockholders to please, to please. They're not social service agencies. They're not public health agencies. And for a very long time, they got away with saying, we're not holding a gun to your head to force you to eat anything. If you make a food choice, it's your personal choice. So they denied responsibility. But obesity and its consequences have put the food industry in a very different position. It's been very difficult for them to deal with. What would you say are some of the central causes of obesity? Eating too much is the cause of obesity. It's really very straightforward. If you consume more energy than you expend in physical activity, you will gain weight regardless of where that energy comes from. There's a big fuss right now about whether uh, it's carbohydrate or fat that causes people to get fat. I think it's calories. Um, And it's impossible to talk about carbohydrate and fat outside of the context of calories in any meaningful way. But I think there's a vast amount of, of, of evidence that eating too much makes people gain weight. Hmm. Really, it's that simple. And what makes it even simpler is that, you know, I think that larger portions, which started to come into the American food supply in the early 1980s, in parallel with rising rates of obesity are a sufficient explanation. If I had one concept I could get across, I can't even say it with a straight face, it would be that larger portions have more calories. Larger portions definitely have more calories, but when it comes to what the food is actually constituted of, I mean, does that have any bearing on our tendency to overeat or undereat or eat to satiety? Absolutely. We love sugar. We just love it. We're, you know, we have a biological basis for that. It's what makes babies want to drink their mother's milk. It's really important that babies like food or they won't survive. Um, we love sugar. I love sugar. Everybody loves sugar. Unfortunately, sugar makes us want to eat more. So whether and trying to parse out whether it's sugar or the calories that contain the sugar is very, very difficult. I don't think it matters much. Everybody would be healthier eating less sugar. I was listening to a wonderful talk that you gave at Stanford um, probably some time ago. But you must have been. Yeah. <laughs> you, you also talk about, aside from portion size, you talk about variety and proximity to food mm. as being two other key drivers of, of overeating. Well, it's interesting. The American Heart Association has just come out with a study saying that variety or dietary diversity is a very strong predictor of overweight. Um, But the message to eat a variety of foods never referred to junk foods. It always referred to relatively unprocessed healthy foods. And there, if you're eating a diet that contains relatively unprocessed healthy foods, your chances of maintaining a reasonable weight are much better. So really, it's it's variety in the modern supermarket with packaged processed foods that really can lead a person astray. Yeah, what are now called ultra-processed foods. And these are foods that are very highly processed. They don't resemble anything like the foods that they were derived from. And they tend to contain a lot of sugar and salt. And sometimes fat. Yeah. Usually pushes those foods to being what some scientists refer to as hyperpalatable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we like them. You can't eat just one. (laughs) Once you pop, you can't stop. Right. It's a a truism with scientific backing. Yeah. And the food companies go to a a great deal of trouble to learn the research on human behavior, learn what attracts people to eat, and then provide products that people will want to eat. That's their job. That is their job, and they're they're obviously fulfilling their end of the bargain as far as shareholders are concerned. Is there any blame on their hands? Well, yes, there has to be. They're marketing, particularly with marketing to children. Mm -hmm. I think you can argue that adults should learn how to resist marketing and should know what marketing is and what advertising is and know that they're being fooled by health claims, even if they don't want to admit that they're fooled. But marketing to children, it seems to me, crosses a big ethical line. 
And that's a good starting place for looking at what the food industry is responsible for. Um, now, food company executives tell me that they're perfectly willing to make healthier products, but nobody wants to buy them. That's a problem. Hmm. That is a problem. What about the health claims made on, on food packages? What, you know, what are some examples of claims that, that are common? Well, the common ones begin with the word no. No salt, no sugar, no gluten, no GMOs, whatever. Um, or anything that's vitamins added. Uh, organic are claims. Um, you know, there are claims about production values. So free range and those kinds of things. Um, all of those help sell food products. Some of them are more legitimate than others. Um, the nutrition ones are the ones that I'm interested in because that's my field. And I think all nutrition health claims are misleading without exception because they make you think that whatever it is the claim is about is critically important when it's not a specific nutrient that matters. It's the total diet that really has an effect on your health. One food product and one nutrient rarely make a difference unless you're deficient in them or allergic to, to something or um, there's some particular product that you're eating too much of. One food doesn't matter. So to advertise that one nutrient or one food is going to fix your health problem is misleading. It's not going to, or the probability of it's making any difference in your diet is so small that it's almost absurd to talk about. And these packaged processed foods really are the only foods that you'll find making health claims. It's not like you see well, health claims on, on apples. Uh, yeah, apples. <laughs> apples don't have health claims. No, I mean that's the irony of it is that health claims and but on the other hand, it explains what the problem is because health claims are a means for the producers of packaged foods to sell their products. You don't need labels on fresh fruits and vegetables in the produce section, even though those are the healthiest foods you could be eating. But the food industry insisted that the FDA allow health claims on food products. That was their trade-off for allowing a food label on food products. That was the trade-off. We'll do a food label. Okay, we'll stop fighting food labels if you'll let us make health claims. And Congress ordered the FDA to begin permitting health claims. It was like opening a Pandora's box. Wow. And so, I mean, that you would almost think if you were navigating, you know, the aisles at your local supermarket that heart disease was caused by a lack of oatmeal or a lack of Cheerios or you know, things like or that. Or a lack of Fruit Loops or, or anything, or a lack of any of those things when the causes of heart disease are quite complex and involve a combination of genetics, physical activity patterns, diet, whether you're drinking alcohol, whether you're taking drugs of any kind, and so forth. I mean, these are very, very complicated, what are called multifactorial diseases hmm. that have many causes. And to think that one food is going to make a difference in that just doesn't make sense. So on the one hand, I mean, nutrition is, it's a very complicated science. You've obviously dedicated your life to it. But on the other hand, is it really that difficult to know what are the foods that are going to be good for us versus what are the foods that are not so good for us? Well, it's not hard at all, except that we're bombarded by billions, literally billions of dollars of marketing and advertising that are trying to convince, uh, they're trying to confuse us about it. You know, I'm fond of saying that nutrition advice is so simple that Michael Pollan can do it in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Really, that takes care of it. But anything beyond that is a complication. And if you look at individual nutrients, if you look at individual foods, if you take them out of their dietary context, then you're talking about subjects that are so complicated and so difficult to demonstrate uh, that it really confuses people. And I have people coming up to me with tears in their eyes saying that they're just 
desperate to know what it is they're supposed to eat. They don't know what they're supposed to eat. I think that's so sad because food is one of life's greatest pleasures. And people should enjoy what they're eating and love what they're eating and have delicious food every time they eat and not eat anything unless it's delicious. Just don't eat too much. It, yeah. would make a big, it would make a big difference. And, but for many people, this is very difficult. Very, very difficult. And marketing isn't meant to be understood cognitively. It's meant to slip below the radar of critical thinking and not be noticed, to appeal to you on some emotional level, some unconscious level that you're not even aware of. And food marketers know this. They know a lot about human behavior, much more about human behavior than most people do. They're really good at what they do. And so they appeal to emotion. They appeal to something that's unconscious. And and most people are completely unaware of being advertised to, as I was, until I had a great revelation and started noticing. And I was shocked by what I saw. I mean, I just had no idea that there were advertisements everywhere. I never paid any attention to them. Now I do. What are some of your most surprising findings? Well, in this book, there are three main findings. Um, The first is that industry-funded research almost invariably comes out with results that can be used in marketing. Um, They come out in favor of the sponsor's interest. What a coincidence. The second is that the influence of research occurs unconsciously, that the recipients of food industry funding don't realize that they're being influenced. They didn't intend to be influenced. They don't recognize the influence. They deny the influence. It occurs at a subconscious level. That makes it really, really difficult to deal with. And the third is that most of the bias in industry-funded research comes at the level of the research question. So I get letters all the time from food trade associations saying, we're looking for research proposals to demonstrate the benefits of our products for heart disease, cognitive functioning, cancer prevention, whatever. We're looking for benefits. That is a very different research question than what is the effect of our product on health. That may seem like a subtle distinction, but it's a very, very big difference. And if you're looking for studies that will demonstrate benefit, you're going to get studies that are going to demonstrate benefit. Hmm. And I mean, you're you're critical of the industry across the board. So I mean, a lot of people today will point a finger at the sugar industry, mm-hmm. but you also argue that you know foods that are healthy, um, you know, blueberries. Dark chocolate. Mm. You even look into the dark st- chocolate. Who says dark chocolate is healthy? Is it not? It's a candy. Well, but cocoa is a fruit. It's you know. <laughs> oh please. Okay. Uh, chocolate has flavanols, and Mars put hundreds of millions of dollars into right. demonstrating that chocolate is a health food. Now Mars says we know chocolate's not a health food. For one thing, the flavanol antioxidants in it are destroyed by cocoa processing. For another, you would have to eat pounds of chocolate a day in order to get the benefits, and that would give you other problems um, if you're eating pounds of chocolate instead of something else. So they're now selling flavanol supplements. Right. They're not they're not they're no longer claiming that chocolate is a health food, but they did such a good job of claiming that chocolate is a health food that you believe it. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. I don't think that a Mars bar is a health food, but I think that cocoa that has been not processed with alkali, you know, that's contained in a very high concentration in a bar you know, I mean, cocoa. You still need to eat four of those bars to get enough to make any difference. Okay. No, and the uh, and you could get just as much from some other food that was gave you a little fiber and a few other things that you might need as well. But so, do these foods, you know, blueberries, mm-hmm. cocoa beans? Let's go straight to the to the actual fruit, right? Uh-huh. Do they are they additive to an overall healthy dietary pattern or? I mean, is there no point in eating them? Of course there's a point in eating them. All fruits and vegetables 
have health benefits, all of them. They all have vitamins, minerals, fiber, the things that people need. They have antioxidants, whatever the deal is on antioxidants, and we can discuss that. There's not a whole lot of evidence that antioxidants are particularly useful outside of their food context. But within their food context, they could, they could well be. But all fruits and vegetables have that. Fruits, vegetables, nuts, beans, grains, all of them. So why pick out one rather than any other? Are blueberries better for you than raspberries, strawberries, huckleberries, or blackberries? Not necessarily. You want to mix them. The secret of healthy diets is variety. Eat a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a little bit of something else. And not too much overall, and you got it made. Hmm. Um, and eat the ones you like. So this advertising is misleading in that it suggests that this particular food, as opposed to all others in the same rough categories, is better for you than the other ones. This is about marketing. Right. But there's also important caveats, like you just said that variety is the key to a healthy diet, but then earlier in the conversation we talked about the fact that... Variety of healthy foods. Right. So those are those are those are definitely important nuances, and then where does the concept of of like nutrient density fall into your thinking? Well, nutrient density is a, a way of describing relatively unprocessed foods. They have more nutrients for the number of calories or for their weight, or well, weight depends on water, so that complicates things. But they have more nutrients for um, the. They haven't had nutrients taken out, and they haven't had junk put back in. Right. So you want high-nutrient-density foods. That's a nutritionist's term right. for relatively unprocessed foods. Right. All right. Okay. So we're, um, I'm just trying to carve out what like the listener can uh, take away in terms of their diet, you know, the dietary pattern that they should embrace. Do we have to bore listeners with <laughs> nutrient density? Um, no, I don't think so. Just eat relatively unprocessed foods. Hmm. How do you know whether a food is processed? In general, if it has a long ingredient list, comes in a box and has a health claim on it. Would you use the term junk food to describe highly processed foods? I would. I'm rude. <laughs> <laughs> I in the in the in the Stanford uh, talk that you gave you towards the end of the of the talk, you mentioned that nutritionists really don't like to use the term junk food. No, and nutritionists, uh, particularly those who work with food companies would prefer foods of low nutrient density or some other euphemism. But everybody knows what a junk food is. It's something that's highly advertised, extremely profitable to the companies that make it, comes in a box, has lots of ingredients. I mean, has lots of salt and sugar added. Everybody knows what they are. Yeah. What does the diet of, of Marion Nestle look like? Oh, I follow my own dietary advice. I have no trouble following it. Um, I'm really pretty lucky in that I like vegetables. I learned to like vegetables very early in life, and I really do like them. Um, so I follow my own advice, which is roughly Michael Pollan's. I eat food. I don't eat too much. I try not to eat too much. Um, and I make sure I have a lot of plant foods in my diet. I don't find it hard to follow at all. Some research suggests that uh, frequency of eating is another gateway to overconsumption. Do you, how many meals a day are you eating? Well, you know, at, at my advanced age, I can't eat as much as I used to. It's the biggest, biggest, biggest hazard of old age. What a dirty trick. Let me tell you, you can't eat the way you used to. Um, so I eat two or three meals a day. I don't start eating until... 11 or 12 usually, and then I'm done by five or six. Um, and that seems to work just fine for me. I think people have to find their own way of doing it. If I ate three big meals a day, I'd be putting on a lot of weight and I'd be quite uncomfortable. Um, but as I said, I don't have any trouble following my own dietary advice. I think people have to find out what works for them and um, figure out a way that they can eat food they like. And just don't eat too much of it. What's your take on the um, the, the seemingly never-ending battle between zealots on, on either the low-carb, high-fat side or the low-fat mm. side? I mean, do you do you have a dog in that fight? Um, I do have a dog in that fight because I have a book called, a co-authored book called Why Calories Count. 
uh, from science to politics, and the uh, and that book is not why you should count calories. It's why calories matter. I think asking whether it's carbohydrate or fat is the wrong question. Um, I mean, really, the wrong question because you're taking those nutrients out of their dietary context and their calorie context, and I I'm yet to be convinced that it makes any difference where the calories come from. It may make a slight difference, but there are people who can lose weight on high-fat diets and people who can lose weight on high-carbohydrate diets, um, and more power to them if you're trying to lose weight. The trick is to find a diet that works for you and stick to it, which is very, very hard for most people to do. I love that advice. Uh, one thing that the standard American diet is uniquely high in is both carbs and fat. And calories. And calories. No, it's high in calories. Um, in fact, carbohydrate and fat intake as proportion of calories hasn't changed in years and years and years. It stays around the same, um, but people are still gaining weight. That means they're eating too much. Mm -hmm. They're eating too much. What, do, what, what are your feelings on um, meat? Well, I'm an omnivore. Um, I really am. I eat meat. I just don't eat a lot of it. And I like my meat to come from places where I think the animals have been reasonably treated. But lots of people don't eat meat. It's not an essential nutrient. There's plenty of evidence that high meat diets are not good for your health. And there's even more evidence that they're not good for the planet because it takes so much land and energy and produces so much in the way of greenhouse gases to produce the food for animals, we would all be better off eating less meat. Hmm. When you're looking at a study, obviously it's important who's funding the research, but you know something that I often hear a lot on the internet for people that are not um, well-versed in research, you know, they will automatically throw a study out if it, if it seems to conclude something favorable in regards to the industry that funded it for example? Well, I tend to be skeptical of industry-funded studies because the first observation about industry-funded studies is that they come out with results that favor the sponsor's interest. So there's something wrong there. There's been research that has looked in to where the problem arises, and that research shows that it's in the, the way the research question is asked. So it is perfectly possible to design a study that will give you an answer that you want, whether you're conscious of designing it that way or not. You know, the example that I like to give is not a meat example. It's an alcohol example um, because it's very recent and it was on the front pages of the New York Times where f five big alcohol companies gave $67 million to the National Institutes of Health to do a study on whether one drink a day would reduce the risk of heart disease. You know, that idea has been around for a long time. It's been recently called into question as some of those studies have been reanalyzed and new studies have come out. Um, and alcohol abuse is a big problem in our society. So the idea that alcohol has benefits for heart disease is something that raises a lot of questions. And the alcohol industry would love to demonstrate that one drink a day reduces your risk for heart disease. So it made this deal with the NIH Foundation and funded a study to look at one drink a day. And the um, a reporter for the New York Times wrote an article about it. And after she wrote it, she got a tip from somebody at NIH saying, you suggested that this was an open-ended study. It's not. In fact, the investigators on this study have promised the alcohol industry that the study will not show any harm from alcohol and will most definitely give the industry the answer that it's looking for. So she then used for Freedom of Information Act to get emails and was able to show that the investigators were in complete collusion with the alcohol industry to give them the answer that they wanted, and the study was stopped. Hmm. Um, it's that kind of thing. Now, how did they do that? They made sure that the study would not run long enough to demonstrate breast cancer among susceptible women. They made sure that people who were at high risk of heart disease were excluded from the study. You know, they just organized the study so that um, it would be in a group of people who might be likely to show benefits, and they wouldn't run it long enough hmm. 
to show any harm. That's what I mean by it's quite possible to arrange these things. And it happens. And that's at NIH, which is the bastion of independent research in the United States. It was really shocking. Hmm. So I know listeners are now wondering, drink a day, good or bad? Um, Depends on how big your drink is and um, how often you do it. And I wouldn't use that as a means to reduce my heart disease risk. It's very smart. I, I would agree with you. One example that you often give that I love is, you know, if you, because of the way that the food industry is set up today, if you walk into a McDonald's with $5, you can either buy five hamburgers or one salad. And most people, I'm betting, are going to buy those five hamburgers. Oh, Sure. If those prices are still the same, that was quite a long time ago. I think it's possible to eat reasonably healthfully at McDonald's, but if you wanted to eat healthfully, that wouldn't be the place that I would go, right. particularly. But it's possible to do that. But those price differentials have a lot to do with the way we support food in this in the United States. Um, processed foods, I mean, the, the example I love to give is that food alcohol, restaurant, um, companies, the food industry together, everything, spend about $30 billion a year on marketing. $30 billion. That's a lot, mm. though. And, the, and that marketing, um, which, is, you know, which everybody is susceptible to, um, every penny of it is deductible as a business expense from those companies' expenditures. So that's one way in which the government supports the kind of food system that we currently have. I, of course, would like to see the government support a healthier food system, one that promotes health. Are there tactics that people can use to you know, be more cost-effective in their, in their purchasing of whole foods? Well, if you know how to cook, you've got it made, because then you can buy basic food ingredients at very low cost and make them into something delicious. But if you don't know how to cook, it's really hard. Or if you are in desperate need of convenience or um, any of the kinds of pressures that we have on people to buy convenience foods, those foods are cooked by somebody else. You don't know how, you don't know what's in them, you don't know whether they're healthy or not. Cooking at home is always healthier. We're almost always healthier. When it comes to eating out, anything that we can do to ensure that we're eating as healthy as possible? Oh, eating out is so difficult these days. I eat out a lot. And the biggest problem is the amount of food that's served. Remember, larger portions have more calories. And restaurant meals are very generous because the basic cost of food is very, very low relative to the cost of rent, labor, equipment, everything else that a restaurant has to do. Um, And so they can afford, with no trouble at all, to give you huge amounts of food. People have come to expect it. I used to order an appetizer, an entree, and a dessert when I went to a restaurant. Now I'm lucky if I can get through an appetizer Hmm. because they're so big. Right. They're huge. Also, depending on the restaurant that you go to. Yeah. It's, do do you find that it's uh, futile to portion control when the foods that we're eating are maybe prone to overconsumption, whereas other foods that we might order are a little bit more satiating? Um, I think portion control is essential no matter what you're eating. You know, if you're eating a pear, um, an untouched pear, then, yeah, you're going to get through a pear and you're not going to want another one. So in that sense, you've had enough pear. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas potato chips are never satiating. You can never get enough potato chips, or at least I can never get enough potato chips. Right. I quite love them. Hmm. Um, the... So, yeah, I mean, in some sense, some foods are better than others. There's a, a fair amount of evidence that foods that have some fat in them are more satiating than foods that don't. But people have very personal reactions to foods. And this is one of those things that you've got to figure out for yourself, hmm. is what works for you. But I know that when I'm given a bowl of food at a restaurant, and I look at that bowl, and I thought, if I were... Serving food at home, this bowl would would easily serve six. Easily. A salad that serves six. I think, what am I supposed to do with this? What do I do with it? I mean, I bought a salad portion at lunch today, um, weighed it. I mean, I could feel the weight of it and thought, I can't eat this for lunch. 
you know, I put put half of it in the refrigerator. I'll have it either for tomorrow's lunch or for dinner tonight. I don't know. I mean, I, you can't eat that much. If you do eat that much, you're going to put on weight. Hmm. So what are some, you know, I know you spend a lot of time thinking about policy. What are some things that, you know, maybe the food industry could do better and more responsibly and also at the at the policy level? Are there any things that government can do to better help, you know, in terms of nutrition or, you know, I mean, some would argue that the government is what really led to, you know, many of these problems in the first place. Well, I would not make that argument. But the, um, you know, I, I mean, again, I think it's unreasonable to expect food companies voluntarily to do anything that's going to affect their profits. They're not allowed to. You know, they are under enormous pressure to make as much money for their stockholders as they possibly can. Immediate higher returns to stockholders. That's their fiscal fiduciary Mm -hmm. responsibility. They're not public health agencies. So they're trying to, many of them are trying to appear as if they're interested in wellness and public health. And if you talk to individual executives in food companies, they wish they could do better. They really would like to. Um, But then they say, well, we make these healthier products, but nobody buys them. Um, Whether they put the same level of advertising into them is another question. It's very difficult to get. It's very difficult for me to get information about the amount of money that's being used to advertise specific products. Advertising age occasionally has a few figures, but that's about it. I don't know how else you would get that information because it's proprietary. But the... um, So I think they have, yes, they have some responsibility. They're under enormous pressure about it. And that's why so many food companies are doing what they can do. They're trying to reduce waste. That makes everybody happy. Um, They're taking the artificial colors out. I mean, they're doing these superficial things that they can do that will make them look as if they're socially responsible when they're still when if they were really socially responsible they would stop making junk foods they can't stop making junk foods that's where their money is so they're in a difficult position there's plenty that government could do and food company executives tell me that if there were government regulations, it would make their lives much easier because there would be across-the-board recommendations for the amount of sugar they could have, the amount of salt they could have, the size of their portions, all of those kinds of things. They don't want to go first. If they go first, they run the risk of people not buying their products and they lose money. Hmm. If there were government regulations, they would meet the government regulations and do what they had to. Is this government going to regulate? No, because the food industry fights regulations. I mean, the reality is that any time there's an attempt to regulate anything about uh, food production or consumption, the industry fights back as hard as it can. It's got lobbyists in Washington whose job it is to do that and to protect their economic interests. So the only real recourse that the public has is not to buy the products. What about preventing conflicts of interest like, you know, the food... uh, Up until 2015, Coca-Cola was a sponsor for the American Dietetics Association. Pharma sponsors the American Diabetes Association. Mm and mm-hmm. probably a number of junk food mm-hmm. companies as well. So, I mean, it seems to me like that would, uh, those would also be parts of the problem at large Well, as that's well. what I write about in An Unsavory Truth. I've got a couple of chapters on industry funding of nutrition professional organizations. And as long as those professional organizations take money from those companies, um, they're going to be viewed as having sold out as being corrupted, um, as not giving the public the advice that the public needs. I mean, Coca-Cola is a really good example. Coca-Cola pulled out of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics because it was exposed by an enormous investigative report in the New York Times, the same report that actually got me to write this book. Um, Because when that report came out, which talked about Coca-Cola's funding of researchers who were arguing that exercise was more important than what you ate or drank in obesity, uh, without 
mis- without mentioning that they were sponsored by Coca-Cola, unfortunately. When that came out, Coca-Cola was enormously embarrassed and did something quite surprising to me. It's The company said that it would go transparent. And if you Google Coca-Cola transparency, you go right to their transparency website where they list every community group and every researcher that they fund and every individual that they fund and how much they're giving them. It's quite interesting to read that. And so that also opens up the possibility of analysis, and researchers have gone in and looked at that data to see whether the investigators who get money from Coca-Cola disclose it on their papers. Some do, some don't, as it come, as it turns out. And also to see whether industry-funded studies come out with results that are similar to those that are fundament, that are funded by independent sources, and lo and behold, they don't. Hmm. Industry-funded studies favor the sponsor, largely, and independent studies may or may not, depending on what the question is. But there's so much data on this now that you can see where that there are conflicted interests that are at work. Remember, the conflicts are subconscious. People aren't aware of them. And so you need regulation to do something like that. For the pharmaceutical industry, the Affordable Care Act required drug companies to state publicly how much money they give to medical institutions and individuals. You can go on a website and just look it up. Hmm. Fascinating. But that's not required for food companies. It would be nice if it were. I don't see that happening because there's no real pressure that I can see from within the nutrition profession to try to clean up the conflicted situation Mm. as there is within the medical profession to try to clean up the things that drug companies are doing. So that leaves your average person basically left scratching their heads. Exactly. Where do they, I mean, where does your typical person wanting to know how to better feed themselves and their families go for information? Well, I hope to me, of course. <laughs> Both of us. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I think it's very difficult. And so I advise skepticism. Um, whenever you see a nutrition study that advertises a breakthrough as a miracle, as something that will do wonders for a large number of clinical problems. Yeah. Um, or whenever you see everything you thought you knew about nutrition is wrong, that's, those are red flags. Superfood, a red flag. Somebody's trying to market something to you. So a certain amount of skepticism. And then use common sense. If it's something that's decidedly different from eat food, not too much, mostly plants, you want to think about it skeptically. Yeah, I appreciate that. What any other uh, like movements, trends in the health and nutrition space that you know that you'd like to touch on um, or, or comment on? There's been a lot of interest in intermittent fasting, ketogenic mm-hmm. diets, mm-hmm. things like that. People are very interested in this stuff. Well, people like diets um, of various kinds. They sell millions of books. They sell millions of copies of books. People are always trying something new. They all work. Or or they will all work if they reduce calories. The trick is to reduce caloric intake below expenditure, and I guess to do it in a way that you don't mind, Mm -hmm. that you don't notice and you don't mind. So for many people, cutting large categories of foods out of their diet is a good way to do that. The gluten-free trend that has nothing to do with celiac disease, but is about I'm not going to eat anything with gluten in it. That cuts out a lot of calories. And it's been very effective in helping some people lose weight to the extent that they stick to that. The low-carbohydrate diet is a great way to cut calories. Uh, The low-fat diet is a great way to cut calories, but people have a lot of trouble following that. Um, The keto diet, the paleo diet, I mean, all of these work. Yeah. Provided people stick to them. I just feel that certain diets make it like it may ultimately come down to calorie balance, but certain, you know, diets, eating dietary patterns, whatever you want to call them, make it easier to moderate hunger. 
whether it's a hormonal influence yeah, or and, a behavioral influence. Right, and you have to figure out for yourself which dietary pattern that is Correct. because it differs among individuals. So for some people, a high-fat diet works. For some people, a high-carbohydrate diet works. Um, for some people, for people like me, just cutting calories works across the board. Eat a little bit less of everything. I like eating what I like. And I don't want to ever, ever, ever feel that I can't eat what I like. But I can eat less of it and still feel okay. Not everybody can do that, and I understand that. But that's how I'm wired, and I figured that out a long time ago. People have to figure this out for themselves. Do you have any tricks that people can use to make calorie, or not calorie counting, but portion control perhaps a little bit easier? Uh, I think people have to find this out for themselves. I mean, for me, the easiest way to do it is to control portion size. Just don't put a large amount of food in front of me, please. Um, And if somebody does put a large amount of food in front of me, I'm going to take a lot of it away and put it somewhere else immediately. That works for me. That's a trick. I don't know anybody, I really don't, who can take a large amount of food and not eat too much from it. We're just hardwired in some really primitive subconscious way to love food. Of course, we're supposed to love food. That's what keeps us alive. We're, you know, we're, we're genetically programmed to love food, to eat as much of it as we possibly can get our hands on because we evolved in a world in which food was hard to get. We didn't evolve to live in a world that has 50,000 different products in a supermarket and we're supposed to make choices of them. Uh, you know, it would be much better if we bought our food at places where there were fewer choices. It would be a lot easier for a lot of people. Farmer's market. Buy your food at farmer's markets. And that also has the benefit of supporting local farmers, which I think is another really good benefit. Um, So I think people have to figure this out for themselves, and they do. I mean, people tell me all the time that they find if they just don't eat bread, everything is fine. Uh, When I wrote my book, Soda Politics, I suggested that people cut sugar sweetened beverages out of their diet. I've had people tell me that they lost 20 pounds in two months Mm. just cutting soft drinks out of their diet. When I wrote my book, What to Eat, in 2006, I, I I didn't write it as a diet book. It's not a diet book. It's an eat healthy book. And I had people telling me over and over and over again that they lost 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 70 pounds. Somebody told me that he lost 70 pounds just making different choices from supermarket shelves. Hmm. Um, And that's an eat less book. You know, eat less, move more. That's one of those. So I just think there are lots of ways of doing this and people have to figure out for themselves which one works for them, and stick to it. Many ways to skin a cat. Do you personally uh, opt for organic? Oh, every chance I get. Because the organic rules make it very clear that organic production is better for the environment, it's better for soils, it's better for farm workers. Hmm. I'm for it. What about from a, from a health standpoint? Well, if healthy soils make for healthier people. Um, It's been very, very difficult to demonstrate that organics have a higher nutritional value. Plants make their own vitamins. Um, So it's not really a nutrition issue. It's really an environmental issue that affects nutrition Hmm. in an indirect way. That's how I see it. But I'm absolutely for it. Yeah. I've read some research that, um, that, you know, has looked at, at produce versus organic versus conventional and found higher... Uh, concentrations of of various polyphenols, phytochemicals, Mm -hmm. maybe not vitamins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can predict who did those studies by what the results are, Hmm. whether it was somebody who was for organics or against. Believe me, the conventional agriculture system has lots of studies that show that organics make no difference and are lower in some nutrients than others. I think it depends on which nutrient you pick and how you design the study. I'd like to see independent research on that, but I don't think that nutrients are the issue because plants make their own vitamins. So, I mean, the proportion of nutritional studies that we can actually trust 
are very low. Because oh, I, I don't mean, think so. No? Okay. No, I think there's plenty of research that's trustable. It just has to be taken in context. Hmm. You know, and you want to question research that's funded by somebody that has a vested interest in doing it. You know, there's big pressure on nutrition research now. Um, from a statistician at Stanford, thinks that people who do nutrition research should disclose their dietary ideology. I'm an omnivore. I just disclosed. Um, they think that if people are doing research on gluten-free diets and they're on a gluten-free diet, they should say so. I think that's wise. I don't know. All research. Everybody who does research has biases of one kind or another, but those biases eventually cancel each other out over the course of research. There will be people who will be pro-gluten, anti-gluten. There'll be people who pro-GMO, anti-GMO. Eventually, um, the you'll get the totality of research and you'll be able to make some sort of sense over it. One study never makes that much difference. You should never change your diet based on one study. Right, that's, correct. that's not how science works. Um, and I think industry funding is very, very different from those other kinds of biases in that it's not necessary, it's discretionary, and the results always come out in the same direction. They're highly predictable. I don't know the, the numbers, but does the NIH supply adequate funding for nutrition science? Well, it depends. Of course not. The NIH doesn't supply adequate funding for everybody. Of course not. There are many more researchers doing projects for which there's money. Um, I would make a general statement that really good projects still get funded by NIH, but NIH has its biases. It wants to fund studies of prevention of chronic disease. It's interested in dietary studies, not studies of specific foods. Companies that want studies of specific foods are doing marketing research. They're trying to sell their specific food. That's fine. They can do marketing research, but they shouldn't be publishing it in science journals, I don't think. Hmm. So much food for thought. I've got one last question. We're, we're almost out of time. But before we uh, wrap up, where can listeners um, read more about you, dig into you know, uh, more of your work in a, in a mm -hmm. more comprehensive way? Yeah, I run a website, foodpolitics.com, and I blog on it almost every day during the week. I also list, I have my papers up there. I've got information about my talks. I've got videos. I've got, I don't know, my life is an open book at foodpolitics.com, and I also have pages for each of my books. Are you on social media? Um, on Twitter, and I have a blog. Great. Do you teach classes at NYU? I do. Wow. I do. I teach courses in food systems. Love that. Uh, okay, so the last question that I ask to everybody that's on this show is, what does it mean to you to live like a genius? The show is called The Genius Life. So. Oh, I never thought of myself that way. Sorry. Well, no, you don't have to think of yourself as a genius. But, mm. ge I mean, genius means something different to everybody. So, I mean, you know, you could c call it eudaimonia. You could call it, you know, a life well lived, whatever, you know, whatever that means to you. Well, I hope that people who read my books and follow my work will get active in trying to develop a food system that's healthier for people and the planet. That's my goal. I want to see lots of food advocacy out there. I love that. Me as well. Well, Dr. Nessel, thank you so much for being here. This was a real treat. I appreciate it. And to all you guys out there listening in podcast land, as always, I value your time and attention. This has been another episode of The Genius Life. Peace. <laughs>